Hello and welcome to the How We Do History podcast. I'm your host, Casey Terry. At the Indiana Historical Society, we do history. But how do we do that? Over the next few episodes, I'll be pulling back the curtain to show you what pieces come together so we can be Indiana storytellers. This week, I'll be talking with our local history services team to see how they do history. Thank you guys so much for joining me. Would you mind going ahead and introducing yourselves? Hi, I'm Tamara Himmerlein, and I'm the director of local history services. Hello, I'm Jeanette Rooney, and I'm the assistant director of local history services. And I'm Karen DePau, and I'm the manager of local history services. Local history services. I know when I started here at IHS, I didn't really know what that was. So for our listeners at home who might be like, what does a local history services team do? What is it that you guys do? I know that's a loaded thing. <laughs> well, to start, we don't actually do history. Yeah. Yeah. Story. We work with the people who do history, the people and organizations who do history. We are... I think maybe the only department at the Indiana Historical Society that doesn't do as kind of that action verb history. We provide tools so other people can do it. We provide all kinds of learning opportunities. We're what's known as a field services office. And so we provide professional development resources and things like that to our colleagues in the field. So it is in the history field, the museum world, it's a niche profession. (laughs) There are probably between 100 and 150 people in the country who do what we do in the way that we do it. Something you mentioned was helping colleagues do history. And you don't mean IHS colleagues. Sometimes, yeah. (laughs) Well, when when asked we do, we've done presentations and things more for IHS internally. And we certainly act as resources because one of one big part of our job is something we sometimes refer to as train the trainer. Like we have to know all the stuff so that we can answer the various questions that we get and can respond to those as quickly as we can. So we have to really stay up to date on what's going on in the field, what is going on in our personal areas of interest or expertise. So our colleagues within IHS know that. So sometimes they'll reach out to us and say, hey, we have a question. So yeah, we certainly help internally as well. But primarily, we are out and about around the state. And we visit and work with historical societies and museums all across Indiana. So yeah, so we also go all around the state. Sure. Go anywhere. We kind of joke that we go anywhere we are asked. Okay. (laughs) So we don't we don't necessarily choose the organizations we work with. We There are always organizations who come to us and say, hey, can you you know, provide us some information on this, that, or the other? I think another thing that we do that is not specific to a particular type of training or type of learning opportunity is that we, I think we help local organizations network with each other and connect them to the Indiana Historical Society and the things that the IHS does. I also think one of the things and one of the benefits of an organization like the IHS having a field service office is that we keep in touch with what's going on in the state in terms of history organizations and museums, libraries, archives, and things like that, and sort of know what sort of boots on the ground concerns are. But then the other part of it is no one historical society can collect and really do a good job of educating on all of the stories of every community and group in the state. And so as we're working with um, local groups, really a part of it is is thinking of them and working with them as partners in in doing history in the job that we are doing to to preserve history and the objects that are represented are representative of that history. I think another thing too that kind of LHS does is in part as a benefit to the local groups that we work with, but also as an assist to IHS as a whole, is that a lot of times in states, the state level historical society or the state level museum or the state level archives are the ones who tend to get contacted from local organizations who have questions, who have needs, who need pointed in the right direction for things. But if it weren't, if local history services as a department didn't exist, 
then you might have one organization who contacts our, our development department at IHS and then also contacts the collections department, but collections doesn't know that they're also talking to the fundraising department. So they don't have that ability to assist an organization in that broad view of how all these pieces fit together. Sure. Whereas since they're since we have this field services group that organizations can reach out to, we then might reach out to our development department or collections department for advice or for information. But we then have a better view and can assist an organization more wholly. Because a lot of times, one of the things that we find is that, I mean, just with people, you know, you ask a question and that might not really be your question, <laughs> like that you're, you don't really know what you're trying to figure out. And so because we've got that whole view of an organization, we can kind of help them figure out and help us figure out kind of how we can best assist them. So in local history services, we have we have a lot of sort of broad knowledge, like Karen works a lot with collections care, and she has a lot of knowledge with collections care, collections management. Tamara has a lot of knowledge with um, running an organization, management, operations, um, and collections care. My sort of area of knowledge tends to be more in um, audience and visitor services, exhibits, some of those um, other kinds of things. But... Basically, we serve as a clearinghouse for resources. Um, we don't always have the answers. A lot of times we don't have the answers, but we serve as sort of a centralized place that people can come and we will we will do some of that research and find the answers that they need for their museum work. I would say another really important part of how we function as a department is that one of our core values, and, and for me, our most important core value is that when we're working with our colleagues across the state, we are meeting local organizations where they are. And so very often we'll go to an organization or they'll, they'll call us in and sometimes they have this, they'll say, we're so sorry you have to see this or you know they have this feeling that they are not doing good enough because I think what they are seeing as models are perhaps things on TV or, like the, or movies that museums look like or reading articles um, from, say, the Smithsonian or much larger institutions. And so sometimes we go in and, and they sort of have an, a view of their organization as not being enough. Our core value of meeting an organization where it is says, you are enough and we are here to work with you on on what you what you want to be like what what do you what's your next step one of the things when i'm doing collections care site visits or when i'm talking to people what, about what those may look like or you know referring them to karen for a collections care site visit is i will say what we're not going to do is come in and say to you that without fifty thousand dollars worth of purpose-built collection storage you can't do anything i said what we're going to say is Here's what you can do with a white pool noodle mm -hmm. and a cotton pillowcase. And, you know, to sort of say, here's here's a place to start or here's the next step or here's working toward getting that next tier. And I think really that that meet meet people, meet organizations where they are is really important to that. And it is it is key to the kinds of relationships we build where pe where organizations will invite us in. So I think I think that that is something um, that that we kind of I don't know departmentally hold dear is that value is that it guides our work I think in a lot of ways I think that's also really important too because since we do that since we meet people where they are as you said you know we come in and we tell people you know here are museum best practices like we are teaching you these these things to strive for, you know, especially in collections care, there's a lot of like best practices or best audience practices and things like that. But we're very clear on and, you know, this is your aim, but it might take you 15 years to get there. So how do we help you move forward? But at the same time, we're also very clear, though, if it's like, well, there's, you know, but there's also this Indiana property law and that's a law like that. Is, <laughs> yeah. This one is not your choice whether or not to follow. This is a thing. It exists. You must do it like that. That definite difference between best practices and also museum ethics. Like, no, these are 
these are ethical standards for the way museums do things. These you really need to follow. But, you know, if you need to keep things in sterilite tubs instead of cardboard boxes for a couple of years until you can get a grant to get acid-free storage, that's fine. So we also, I think it helps us in making it very clear and it helps our or- the organizations we work with to understand when we're telling them something that is leave it or take it advice and when we are telling them something that is like, no, this is a thing because we... As part of our field services ethics, we do not make institutional decisions for anybody. We will provide them feedback. We'll give them information. So they're they're always very aware, though, when we're telling them, like, no, but this is a law. <laughs> this is something you have to do. So something you guys mentioned is that you don't go where you're not invited. So how does an organization get a hold of you? And how do you decide which organizations to go out and help. So we're like history vampires. Yeah, we can't cross the threshold unless you good <laughs> Make sure there's no... Well, no, if you're going to serve us Make sure something. there's only acid-free paper. Yes. So you can find us on our website. All of our contact information is at indianahistory.org forward slash LHS. And we will generally always come when we're invited. So um sometimes you know it might be a situation where we can provide consultation over the phone or by email um and then sometimes maybe um we want to visit in person or you want us to come and visit in person and we're always happy to do that yeah and a lot of times we meet organizations through um our traveling exhibit program is one of our kind of low-level entry points where we get in the door of organizations they get to know us, we get to know them. There's always chatting that happens when setting up an exhibit. And so sometimes then that will lead to them following up with another question or we host regional meetings around the state. And that's a good way for, it allows us both to see and talk with the organizations that we frequently hear from, but also to meet new organizations. A lot of it is just word of mouth. Even just organizations saying, hey, I called up this other local organization to ask them my question and they said, hey, you should talk to local history services. We do manage um, the Indiana County Historian Program, and that's a program that is co-sponsored by the Indiana Historical Bureau. And so there are one volunteer county historian for each county in Indiana. And if you get to know your county historian, um, we work pretty closely with them as well. And so that is one way that we, we connect with the counties around the state as well. And I think... In our travels through Indiana, one of the things that is clear is that sort of there are pockets of the state that don't feel connected to Indianapolis, that don't feel connected to the center of the state. You know, there are parts of the state where they get their news from Ohio or Illinois, and they feel kind of disconnected, I think. And sometimes that spreads into kind of an organizational lack of connection. So when we do the county historian program, when we are out there with traveling exhibits, when we're doing our regional meetings, those sorts of things, what we're really doing is um, connecting those organizations that don't feel connected really to Indianapolis, working to so that they feel a connection with the Indiana Historical Society, that they feel like they are part of the larger history community in Indiana, which I think I think is a very important part of our outreach and, and is is perhaps not specifically stated as as the outreach, but it certainly is adjacent to everything we do. So you mentioned traveling exhibits. Yes. What exactly are those? Do we just and by we I mean you do you just bring them with you anywhere you go, or do people request them? They're exhibits that travel all over Indiana. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that really cleared it up for me. Thank you, Tamara. You're welcome, Casey, anytime. So to expand on what our super informative and wonderful director has said. So the Traveling Exhibits is a program that we do that where we offer one of 18 different topics of traveling exhibits to local organizations Local heritage organizations are the main borrowers, but we also supply a lot of libraries with traveling exhibits, and then they are actually available for borrow to 
really any organization that wants to do education. So sometimes we work with local schools. We have even had um, local for-profit companies want to display them. Lily has displayed some in there. Lily has done some in like their staff areas sure. for their staff to see. Um, so we will take them anywhere. But it is a f- it's a free program for local history organizations. Um, they can borrow up to three different exhibits a year. We take them. They get to borrow them for four or five weeks. We take them. We set them up. We come back in four weeks and we take them down. A lot of times it's basically I love doing the traveling exhibit program because it's all a logic puzzle and I love logic puzzles. <laughs> so it's looking at the map when we're scheduling things and figuring out like, okay, well, we're already going to be up in this area at this time and we could, you know, take a 15 minute detour to drop off this exhibit at this new organization and we could pick this one up from here and then take it directly to this other place. So it's just a lot of kind of configuring like that. So yeah, usually when we're out for traveling exhibits, unless they're extremely far away, there are some organizations that borrow them that are, you know, almost a three hour drive from Indianapolis. Um, but most of the time, we're doing a number of traveling exhibits in one day, and we're taking the time then when we're at an organization setting something up to chat with them about what their needs are. Sometimes they'll get combined with kind of small meetings <laughs> or meeting up with an organization like for lunch or chatting with them and kind of planning an extra 20 minutes. Or if we know that they're working on a project, um, even if they haven't reached out to us, we might add in a little bit of buffer time so that when we're down there, we can ask them how it's going and make sure, see if kind of they need anything from us while we're while we're actively there. Karen, you did all the logistics, but what are the traveling exhibits? Oh, yeah. So the traveling exhibits are, we have 18 different topics of traveling exhibits and they're on the history of Indiana, various topics. The exhibits are 16 panels that are all magnetic panels, so they kind of snap together and hold each other up. They're about three feet wide by seven feet tall. So the nice thing is, is that they're substantial enough to stand alone if an exhibit was going to an organization and they just wanted, you know, Auto Indiana, and they just wanted to throw it up in an empty space and use it to showcase the auto industry in Indiana. But they're also flexible enough that, and we really encourage organizations to do this, that they might, you know, put a display case next to it that talks about the auto industry in their part of Indiana. The panels can be separated. We put them in historic house museums where there's like two panels over here and three panels in this room and another two panels over in another room. It's always really fun when they go to libraries because the librarians are very clever in putting together like their book displays of like highlighted books that have to do with this topic and sometimes what they what they come up with is you know librarians they're hilarious so they're very clever (laughs) i do always like seeing what organizations have chosen to to do with the traveling exhibits yeah karen has said that from our standpoint they're they're a low barrier entry point or you know, we do have those people who are like, hey, you want to come see our, our reshelving? You want to come see how we've rehoused this? And, you know, but for for a lot of the organizations, they also provide kind of a state and national context to a local story. And so they do that quite often. And I absolutely love when I go in to pick up an exhibit to see how the, what they've chosen to display or you know, sometimes they all chat to us about programming that they did. So something I'd like to ask as well is about the county historians, actually, because you mentioned uh, what they were. They're a network of volunteers uh, who are one per county. Yes. But what do they do as the county historian? Is there a set of uh, duties for that volunteer role? And if so, what does that involve? Yes. So the Kenny Historians, they serve three-year terms. They are um, officially volunteers of the Indiana Historical Society. The primary role of the Kenny Historians is to connect people with resources, local history resources, um, statewide resources. They can do research. They can do all kinds of programs. And the Kenny Historians, beyond doing that sort of 
basic role of connecting people with resources, they can do any sorts of projects or um, things that are of interest to them. So some county historians work in the local museum. Sometimes they work in libraries. Some county historians pursue genealogy projects or um, particular research, research projects. They do all kinds of things. They participate in local fairs and programs. They do presentations. Um, they do podcasts. They write blogs. They write news stories. So they do all kinds of things of interest to local history in their counties. How would someone go about finding their county historian? Yeah, they're all listed on our website. Um, we actually, on, under our local history services page on the Indiana Historical Society website, we have a page that is find local resources by county. And on that page, we list uh, by county in alphabetical order, county historian and any historical organizations in that county. So you can not only find your county historian, but you can find your local historical society and other organizations with local history resources there. How does someone become a county historian? So county historians serve three-year terms, and those terms can be renewed for as long as the county historian would like to continue to serve. So if a county historian decides to retire from the position or um, leave for any reason, then we um, contact the local historical societies and libraries in their county to request nominations. If you are interested in becoming a county historian, First, I would suggest getting in touch with your local county historian to see if you can help them in any way. County historians do have the ability to appoint associate county historians within their within their county. So that might be something that could be a good role if you wanted to do that and sort of work under the current county historian and, and learn the ropes. Other than that, you can also contact the local historical society and or you can contact us and we can give you um, the information about how county historians are appointed. And something you guys mentioned is your services in general, but that's been kind of nebulous um, outside of like collections care, talking about mm -hmm. what you do there. What other services do you provide as consultation? One of the things we provide are email resources. We do a weekly e-newsletter called Communicate Online, and that has resources for people working in museums and history organizations. It's got all kinds of things about funding opportunities and learning opportunities, what's going on around the state in the history community. That's free for anyone to sign up. And then Karen, if you want to talk about, Karen does yeah. another e-newsletter. Yeah, we also do a monthly e-newsletter or e-resource rather on the first of every month that is called collections advisor which is all things collection related so sometimes it's preservation or conservation related other times it's like how do we collect current things how do we have difficult conversations about maybe some of the more difficult pieces in our collections so that's something and both of those resources are pdf'd and kept online so if you are interested we're on like issue 130 something of collections advisor but all the past ones are available online. The last couple of past communiques are always up. So those are some of the resources we do. We also have a bunch of webinars that we did during the pandemic that have been recorded and are still available online. We have done live workshops in the past. We do those both kind of scheduled where we kind of pick a topic based on usually just based on the kinds of questions we're getting at any particular time, because it seems like once someone asks a question, suddenly there's eight other people asking the same question when we've never gotten this question before. So then that is, there are always, there's always really in the water. But yeah, so we do like workshops that we've kind of put together and invite other people to, but then there's also our workshops that people can request. And so older workshops that are kind of more detailed more in depth that someone might ask us to come in their organization and they're going to host us doing a workshop. So we do workshops, we do consultations. I do mostly collections care ones, but Jeanette goes out and will do like exhibit consultations and walk through exhibit areas or talk about visitor and audience engagement at an organization. Yes. Tamara gets to do the really fun ones. Tamara does workshops and consultations and visits on board development and board training and fundraising. 
and strategic planning. So all that really super cool, fun stuff. And then we also recently started doing video production. So we also have some... We're delving into the world of videos. Yes, we also do some video production stuff. We're doing some of our trainings by video. We started doing a series called Timely Tips, which are, what, two to five minutes? Three to five minutes? Less than five minutes. Less than five Under five minutes, yes. Under five minutes. So... Those are really fun and they're kind of meant to be a a fun thing that you can like share with your volunteers on how to handle objects or really, really basic intro level stuff. Yeah, there are two of them currently up on YouTube as we're recording this podcast, but look for the third one coming soon where you will get to see Tamara and Karen sensing with (laughs) (laughs) Can we have fun? They're very great snapshots. We do history. We do. We do. So so we are very comfortable with each other. And one of the things, like with the timely tips, so when we would when we do workshops and stuff, we always do evaluations. And a lot of times the evaluations come back. You know, it was clear you enjoyed the topic. It was clear you were having fun. And this was really interesting and you you made us laugh. One of the things that we try to do in the timely tips is kind of capture that sense of oh I don't know the fun that we have or the things the banter we have I love it um, between us yeah yes. it's a yes. balance of fun and education yes yes um and and one of the things that we have been known to say when we have those moments no matter what the setting is whether it's a workshop whether it is filming a timely tips whether it's recording a podcast is we have moments where we we LHS which means we just kind of lean in to the banter and the companionship and the levity and a little silliness and silliness yeah yeah and i think that's i think that's a really important part of why why we can have the successful interactions that we have with our the organizations that we work with and our colleagues around the state is because we take the topic of what we do seriously but not so seriously as to make it no fun. Because a lot of the organizations we work with are all volunteer. If they weren't having some kind of fun, if they weren't enjoying the work they were doing, they wouldn't do it because they're not even getting paid for it. And so I think that it's really important also for them to see that we also love the work that we do and we love the opportunity they give us to assist them in whatever ways they need us. And so I think that also helps them kind of keep coming back to us because they know it doesn't feel like they're bothering us. We never give the the idea that it was a bother to drive down to southern Indiana or that it was a bother that we had to, you know, do all this research. Usually our emails back, I know when Folks will ask me some things of like, oh, hey, how do I get rid of a taxidermy bald eagle? Like, I would never have needed to know that answer except that you asked me. And then I went down a rabbit hole. And now I can tell you what federal organizations you need to contact, who you need to contact, how you get those things done. And so and I think they see that in us. They see how much we enjoy doing our work and that therefore that means when they ask us to do our jobs, we don't mind doing them. This is not a slog it's a it's a beautiful slog <laughs> and i think i think the other for me and i don't know about karen and Jeanette, um but i suspect it's true we'd rather i'd rather poke myself with a sharp stick and then be seen as this a sage on the stage or anything like that i learned so much from the work i do and what i hope when i'm working with an organization is that they see that and they feel that. And, you know, if a little bit of my passion or enthusiasm comes to the fore, I I, I don't I don't know that that is anything to be. I don't worry about that. And I don't we couldn't do what we do if we weren't so invested in building those relationships with people. Yeah. And um, I think and such a part of field services is it's a long game it is it's a long game you see you see organizations that you work with change for the better or change in how they present something or do something and whether it be something small like their signage is bigger and more readable and has less words in an exhibit 
or if it's something big and it's a major organizational shift, like that can take years of working with an organization and watching them do the amazing work that they do. And it's if you're not an impact junkie, <laughs> then you're not going to be able to to wade through the slog that it takes to get there. Just the other day, I got a phone call from an organization. Well, an organization contacted Jeanette um, because they had uh, an issue with a waterlogged time capsule. And Jeanette referred them to me. And when I called, um, they were an organization that I personally hadn't had contact with for probably seven years. And during the phone call, the woman said, I don't know if you remember but years ago, you did a site visit here and you taught us about some archival materials. And she said that has been so helpful in the years. And and she said, and now with this project that's been so helpful, she said, every time we have to order archival supplies, we go back to the list that you gave us and we and, and notes from the site visit. And that was like seven or eight years ago. And so I got off the phone, though, and I was like, Yes, yes, because that is impact, but it's seven years down the line. You know, it's not, we don't, we don't see very often overnight impact, but we, we have something that I call, well, I do it. I don't know if Jeanette and Karen do. I have like an impact dance that I do when, when uh, somebody, because it's just, it is amazing because you go in and you're like, Here's some suggestions. And seven years down the line, somebody from an organization is like, we're doing these things. And and it makes us better. And I'm like, and and she was like, thank you. And I was like, you guys are doing the work. You know, thank you for doing the work. So another way that we've really gotten to see impact is we got funding from Lilly Endowment a few years ago um, to do heritage support grants and so we offer grants to organizations and that has been so amazing to see what organizations have been able to do with that funding I mean everything from fixing a roof leak to totally revamping their collection storage to redoing an exhibit to engaging their communities in new ways that has been so impactful and so wonderful to see so that's that's still a program that's ongoing we still will have grants available on next year through our heritage support grants program and the way that organizations have been able to leverage those grants into more grants from their community foundations, partnerships with other organizations, donors who had, you know, are coming out of the woodwork for the first time. So watching them turn a, you know, $10,000 grant from us into $100,000 worth of support over a number of years or a number of projects is really amazing. And we know from um, evaluation that we've done that most of that money goes into their local economy. It stays in their counties. It stays in their regions. It's being used to hire local contractors, local printing shops to do exhibit development. So with the Heritage Support Grant Program, it was designed with education in mind. It actually, one of the things is it's great to be able to fund projects that are really hard to fund getting a funder to to write a check for, you know, $5,000 worth of archival supplies, you know, folders and boxes, that's not really sexy. And so HSG helps fund those sorts of things. Yeah. There is nothing about the application. There's nothing about any of the reporting that is throwaway. It is meant to to educate applicants on grant writing and the grant process to help them build a toolkit for making cases for support and things like that. Um, one of the organizations was doing a digitization project and what they needed to do as part of that was clear out some of their space. So they contacted a local program for kids who have gotten into some trouble. And so they said, hey, we need, we need volunteer help. And one of the things that was great is instead of using the kids to move shelves and, and desks and what have you. They actually brought the kids in and taught them about collections care. They taught them some things about digitization. And the feedback they got from the director of the program was 
that that was awesome because what it did for those kids is is it turned this volunteer opportunity from a punitive moment to a real learning opportunity. And it also helped connect them to the community. And the director said, and these kids see how they are valuable members of a community now that that just that, that museum taking the HSD funded um, project and then sort of looking at it and branching it out and saying, here are the ways we can do this. So at the core, you had the HSG project that they said they couldn't have done without the funding. And you have the organization that is leveraging it to do some really real good in their community with, with perhaps a misunderstood in some ways underrepresented um, group of, of youth. You know, so it's it's super cool to see what HSG has been able to do in Indiana. Something I like to ask all guests on the show is, how did you get into your current position? What <laughs> I don't think there is a single person probably who does field services right now who went to school thinking, I want to do field services. You can't get a degree. Yeah, right. it's not it's not something you can send a lot of people don't even know what it is. Yeah. So it's until it's they listen to this episode of the podcast <laughs> field service. True story. So with. I think in in so many in so much of the work that we do in museums, there's kind of like there are trajectories. You know, there are places you start, you know, you get a degree in museum studies and then you go work and you decide you want to do programs or you're a teacher who decides that they want to do history education outside of a classroom or you literally go to a program that specializes in curatorial or things like that. Whereas with field services, I think we all came to it in very different ways. So for me, I was working at a museum in Connecticut when I came to the Seminar for Historical Administration program that is hosted. It it's a huge partnership. Um, it's mostly hosted by the American Association for State and Local History, and it's hosted at the Indiana Historical Society. Um, when I came, it was three weeks on site. And at that time, one of my colleagues in the program had asked to meet with Tamara and the person who was um, head of or the director at the time. And I had asked her, I was like, oh, that sounds like a really cool department. I don't know anything about that. Can I tag along? So I didn't even make the meeting. I tagged along with a friend of mine and we had lunch. And by the end of lunch and by the end of that three weeks, I was kind of like, you know, that's kind of similar to things that I'd been working on. You know, like I said, a lot of state organizations end up or state level organizations end up being the go to for small places to ask. And that had happened where I was working in Connecticut. And so I had started answering some of those questions from the field and I thought it was really cool. And then I learned it was something I could actually do. And then lucky for me, I don't know how lucky they feel, but lucky for me, their director at the time took another petition shortly after I was there and they had a job opening. And so I learned about field services in November and by April I was working here. So yeah, that was kind of my like super wonky, like didn't know it existed and then was like, that's, that's, that's my life. That's what I want to do. And now I can't imagine doing anything else. I also didn't know really anything about field services. I've been working here now for um, almost 15 years. And I originally started at, in a coordinator position with our department. Um, my educational background is actually in art history and graphic design. And I grew up around museums. So I knew I wanted to do something in museums. I interned with the National Archives and um, I actually worked on a historic bridge survey in Indiana before I came here. I saw this job opening that seemed like it would have a broad experience in museums and applied. And that's the end of the story, yeah. So <laughs> I've been here ever since. And now you're a wizard. <laughs> yes. So I have been working in and with museums for 24 years now, 25 years now. My academic background, I have a master's in medieval Spanish literature. And so I, and I was working. Which um, is a direct line. 
So right. that's, that's, that's <laughs> totally. So I was working on a PhD <laughs> in medieval Spanish literature, specifically sociological game theory in um, novelas sentimentales and sort of um, educational literature in, in uh, late medieval Spain. Anyway, super nerdy. I don't like writing, which means a dissertation is is a problem. So I was kind of hoping something would happen. Um, <laughs> and weirdly, in my local uh, where I was living, there was an ad in the local newspaper for a job at a museum. And my husband said, you should apply. And I said, I had exactly one museum studies class. And my lovely husband said, oh, but you're smart and you've done a lot of other stuff and go ahead and apply. So I did, and I did the interview, and I was like, oh my gosh, I want to work in museums. Really, really want to. And so I was fortunate enough to get offered the job. In the course of learning about museums and doing museum work, um, I became a peer reviewer for the Museum Assessment Program for the American Alliance of Museums. And at my first site visit to an, an organization outside of Indiana, a friend of mine picked me up at the airport and looked at me and said, oh my gosh, you loved that. And I said, what? She said, you're grinning. And she said, I think you're glowing. And then she talked to me a little bit later about field services. And I was like, I think that's what I want to do. And so I literally kind of hung out now, and I loved my museums. Um, I am still in love with my museums. But I, I was hoping, you know, all my fingers and toes crossed um, for a position to open up in local history services. And when it did, I applied. And when, when I was offered the job, I think the first thing I said to my husband was, I just got offered a seat at the cool kids table. <laughs> Which if you... <laughs> Which is a whole thing. There's a That's cool kids table at the History Museum. Spot. <laughs> so no, so just so it feels right for me, and it has felt All right for me. Pieces of the museum are equally as cool. <laughs> that is true. That is true. I think so. I realized after I said that how horrible that sounded. I'm not a horrible person, but for me, field services is my happy place. It just is, and I think that's what I mean when I was like the cool kids table. It's like. It feels like the perfect place for me. So <laughs> if someone who is listening would like to get involved in local history services or see what you do in the day-to-day -day or potentially just want to get involved in their own local history, how would you recommend they do that? So as far as like getting involved in just your local history, I think one of the things that is really important about field services is that it's based on kind of a, a breadth of knowledge. So the more kind of knowledge and skills you can get under your belt, whether they're directly museum related, or I mean, heck now, like having video production skills is a skill that is needed to do successful field services. Getting involved, even just at the local level, you know, volunteering at your local historical organization, reaching out to us. I mean, I, as you can probably tell, I can't imagine any one of the three of us saying no to someone who said like, hey, can we hop on a Zoom? I'm really interested in how you got to where you are and what your job is like. We all are. And I think a lot of the other field services folks that we work with are very passionate about our jobs and about what we do and how we do it. Um, so I would say just head to our indianahistory.org slash LHS webpage there's a general local history services at indianahistory.org email address that you can email those all go to Tamara and then she farms them out to who who would be the correct person to answer them so yeah you can just reach out to us we're happy to answer any questions we can put you in touch like Jeanette said earlier we could put you in touch with your county historian if you want to shadow I mean we constantly hear that people want to get younger people um, engaged, which is really funny. We had one organization say, and that means like under 55, <laughs> like, like that's so if you are interested at all in getting involved in that You're local level, under 50, right. <laughs> let us know. We have some organizations who would be interested in you. <laughs> I would say to one of the things is it, and Karen, Karen said this, it's about breath. All three of us have some depth 
in some things that we do. All three of us have areas of strength and particular skill sets and toolkits and and things like that and that we bring to our jobs. But we've all had a lot of varied experiences, both professionally and in life. And I think that that is very, very important that I would say, I don't know, our worlds are very large and our life experiences are very large and varied. And I think that that's really important. I think it is increasingly important in museums and heritage organizations and cultural organizations in general, but I think particularly in field services. I also think that it's important, and I'm going to kind of circle back to that. Our core value is we meet organizations where they are. I think in in a lot of ways to do field services, you have to have an ability and a willingness to sort of step outside of yourself a little bit because field services is not really about us. Local history, field services is what we do, but field services is really about the organizations we serve in a lot of ways. And I would say, yeah, that's a that ability to sort of step outside of yourself. Yeah, and that's a lot of the, ways. I know when I first started here, that kind of one of the things in my in my education of becoming a field services officer was Tamara used to refer to it. Well, she still does. We're not officers. <laughs> I was about to say, I wish you had badges. <laughs> we are not the law. No, no, no. That was the a yeah. and law. <laughs> as they field law. service Self-law. providers. Yeah. I, as field services. <laughs> Folk. Folks. As field service folks. One of the things that Tamara would talk about and still sometimes does is credentialing up. And that's not something we usually do. You know, usually we walk into an organization and very much part of it is, yes, we are here because you asked us because we have a knowledge about something specific that you've asked us here for that is maybe something that you don't have as much depth in or you would like another set of ears or eyes on. But just as many times we leave then with as much knowledge that we have gained as that which we've shared. We always try to refer to the organizations we work with as colleagues because that's exactly what they are. And anytime you get together with colleagues, you share things that you've learned and you learn so much more. And I am I am so proud to be part of an organization that supports field services. The Indiana Historical Society has supported field services for, you know, the last 38 or 39 years. And that is really important, I think, because it really does say that we're, we're in this together. We're in the history thing. And, you know, the doing history, we're in it together. So to be a department in the Indiana Historical Society and know that they support our work and our colleagues across the Indiana is really important to me. To bring it back around, I would say, even though our department doesn't do history, I'm using air quotes, I think it's really important to us to support and have an impact on how history is done around the state. Mm -hmm. Very well put. Before we wrap up this episode, is there any last words about local history services or things about local history services that we did not cover that you think are really important for listeners to know we love desserts and for <laughs> <laughs> your story uh, so if you need any advice or if you have any suggestions for any ice cream donut other sort of confectionery delight <laughs> that we should visit around the state let us know. We visited a lot of them, but we're always looking for new suggestions. It's <laughs> very true. So for me, I want to say that local history services really works together well as a team. And I am very fortunate to get to spend as much time with Karen and Jeanette as I do with my, with my regular family. And they make me laugh. And they make me learn and they make me think hard about myself, 
about the world. And I appreciate that. I think we all appreciate each other a good deal. Yes. As any functioning department will tell you, you know, your ability to have hard conversations with your colleagues and go from having a hard conversation to joking about donuts is, is important because you need to have that that freedom and that safety. And I think because we can create that with each other and we work to create that with the other departments that we work with at IHS, that that also is reflected then to the organizations that we work with when they're going through something tough is that we can have push and pulls. We can ask them to really think about the hard things, but that doesn't mean then that we drop the mic and walk out and leave them like wondering what in the world to do next, we wrap back around and we help them figure out what to do next and what's the next best step for them and how how they feel like they can best move forward. And I think that some of that comes from the fact that we we learn to do that with other organizations by learning to do it with each other in that safe space of knowing that no matter what I say or do that makes Jeanette or Tamara mad that they're still going to like me. <laughs> it might be five minutes, but they'll still like me eventually. <laughs> that was really, though, that was super smart. Like that, just thinking about kind of our internal push-pull mm-hmm. really does give us away. You know? We, yeah, I hadn't thought about that before. Kudos to you. She gave me something to think about, Jeanette. Thank you so much, Tamara, Jeanette, and Karen for joining me on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. And thank you listeners for coming back again. And if you're interested in more Indiana history content, please visit indianahistory.org.